welcome to another edition of the Law of Code podcast. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm very excited to get into this episode covering the story behind Base, Coinbase's Layer 2 that was recently launched. We'll talk about building zero to one, as well as the legal aspects of launching Base and the considerations, as well as my guest's story. And my guest today is Jolie Yang, at Jolie Yang on Twitter. She is a former legal partner to Coinbase's product engineering and design teams on their Web3 initiatives, such as their self-custodial wallet, decentralized identity, and digital assets as product counsel. She was part of the team that launched Base, and Jolie was previously an attorney at Davis Polk and Skadden Arps. Jolie, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you here today and looking forward to talking about your journey. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I've been listening to your podcast, so I am thrilled that you offer the opportunity for me to be on as well. Oh, my pleasure. And this should be an interesting one, but I thought I'd start where we typically start. I'd love to hear about your genesis block and where you were first introduced to Bitcoin, your initial impressions of the technology, what the context was behind that. So could you share your genesis block? I was in New York at the time when I first learned about Bitcoin. And the reason why I heard about it was because I attended a party and folks were transacting on the Silk Road. And I was very confused. I was like, what is this Silk Road? What is this Bitcoin? And it was funny back then people were already using Bitcoin as like a way to transact for items. And it was not until I started as an associate at Skadden that I started really digging into exactly what Bitcoin is and the legal ramifications of it. Back then, I think folks were still arguing about whether it's a security or a commodity. And that was definitely much more exciting than whatever Exchange Act reporting that I was working on at the time and really made my practice as a securities lawyer much more interesting. And that's how I went down the rabbit hole was because it just posed a lot of really novel legal questions. And it was so much more interesting than what I ever thought practicing as a securities lawyer would ever be. And so how did, if you can share, how did that come back across your desk when you were at SCAD and what did that look like? So unfortunately, at Skadden, I wasn't able to directly work on any crypto projects. Back then, a lot of the work was more of a theoretical thought exercise as opposed to actually picking up crypto clients. Back then, a lot of big law firms were very skittish of directly um, interacting in crypto because of the risk that it uh, involves. And it was more of the smaller firms that picked up crypto clients. I do remember that there was this one point where uh, I had the opportunity to potentially work on this crypto project, and I was super excited about it. Um, unfortunately, the SEC started investigating into the project, and that was kind of the end of it. It was, though, because of the fact that I couldn't get my hands on any crypto projects that I've decided that I had to go in-house. Um, the only way that I can actually work directly in crypto is to work for a crypto company. And so you were at Skadden at the time, you were learning more interesting theoretical problems. You went to Davis Polk and then you said, I want to go 
in this crypto rabbit hole. And so you headed to Coinbase. And so when you joined Coinbase, I can imagine your role was quite different than where you were a couple weeks ago, really, in launching Base. What a shift that most lawyers don't normally get the chance to make. So kudos to you and the work that you put in to get there. But I'd love to hear about what your role looked like when you first joined Coinbase and what some things were that you were working on during that time. So it was because of my securities background that I was hired first into the corporate team at Coinbase. And one of my first projects when I first got to Coinbase was to take the company public. And it was truly a once in a lifetime opportunity. I, it was the best crash course into Coinbase that I could have asked for. I learned quickly all the businesses within Coinbase from our institutional to retail to our token exchange. And then I also got to learn the movers and shakers within the company. Um, got to work with the VPs, the executives, and understanding exactly what are their concerns, what is the roadmap for Coinbase as they see it, and how can I support them? So back then, I did everything capital markets, such as leading our $3 billion debt raise, um, helping with our corporate governance structures, our securities reporting practices, our insider trading policies, everything you name it. Um, in addition to that, I also led two M&A acquisitions and also helped out with our venture team with all the um, venture checks that were going out the door. It was, it was crazy, um, to say the least. It was an insane 12 months uh, because of the bull run. And I still can't believe, looking back at it, how much was done during that time. And it was also because I was on Coinbase um, corporate side that I was able to meet and learn from our engineering team about the projects that they're doing. So the Coinbase has this uh, project called Project 10%, where engineers, where you know, any employee really can pitch a, an idea and can spend 10% of their time working on that project. And on the corporate legal team, I was helping our engineers think through different legal structures and how should they think about the regulatory implications about the project that they're doing. And it was also then that through this process that I got to meet Jesse Pollack. And that was the impetus of how I started to work with Jesse and to work on base. And so when you heard about BASE and you began getting involved, what did that initial process look like? And what was your role? Maybe you could even before we get to that, actually, I'd love to just hear about the origin stories of BASE and what that looked like and then your role and how you got involved. Yeah, so it's a very interesting path. It was through the Project 10% that Coinbase had that I cross paths with Jesse Pollock. And it was very serendipitous. I don't know what I did at the time to win him over, but he was enthusiastic about a Project 10% idea he had and needed legal support. Asked if I was willing and if I was interested. I actually didn't know what he was really thinking about building, but I was like, yes. At the time, as much as I love being on corporate legal team, being closer to product was something that I always wanted to do. I just, I'm fascinated about the technology. I want to know how engineers are thinking about building the products that Coinbase is offering. And so the opportunity to work even closer with an engineer on a project was something that I was really excited about. And at the time, it was not base. Like Jesse's original idea wasn't, oh, we're going to go out and build a protocol. Do you want to come with me and do this? At the time, the mandate was pretty broad. Jesse had this idea that he wants to 
bring a billion users on chain? And how is that going to work? And so he explored a lot of different ideas. We went through a lot of different projects internally, pitching different things. And what we came to realize at the time is that there's a lot of scaling issues and that especially during crypto summer, bringing users on chain is very expensive. And how are you going to convince a regular user that has never really heard of Bitcoin, or maybe they've heard of Bitcoin, but they don't really know how to use it, 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 to tell them, oh, you should transact on the blockchain and maybe you will pay $20 just to buy an NFT and that's okay and that's cool. I think that is a very hard problem to solve. And Jesse and the team did a lot of iterations of what to do. And then they came to the realization, we need to go down even a layer deeper into the infrastructure layer to help scale products so that when the time comes, crypto summer, then it's not a hard thing to sell. And then this will also help unlock other creatives and other developers to build dApps that would be useful to the average user. And so that's the genesis story of BASE and how I also got involved. And it was just a serendipitous moment of being open at Coinbase, trying out different things, supporting different teams on different initiatives and got on this project. Small meetings can really change your life in such a different way than most people would think. In terms of your role then, was it primarily a legal regulatory sort of guide in terms of what are some things we need to be careful of or cognizant of? Was that it or did it grow into more of a product actually facing role as well? So my primary role is a product counsel, which I kind of think of it as like a project manager for all the legal teams at Coinbase. Some people also describe it as GC of a product line. Um, You are really responsible for sitting with the teams understanding the roadmap, helping to shape the roadmap as a legal partner, and then making sure you're also quarterbacking other legal partners internally, the specialists, and bring them in so they have visibility. Then we've done our analysis and making sure that the product is compliant when it gets to launch. And this concept, um, in case listeners don't know, is actually started by Google back in the day. They came to the realization that they're products were launching and they're pulling in legal for approval at the end of the process, such that it's getting so late in the game that it's hard to make changes and it just creates a lot of friction internally. And so Product Council really came up as a part of that initiative to really help smooth and pave the way for product launches that are also compliant. And I think this is super important in crypto because there's just a lot of landmines, frankly, in the current state of what kind of products can be built and what kind of design decisions engineers need to think about right up front so that when the time comes and when the product is getting launched, it is as compliant as possible and it has thought through all the possible regulatory frameworks from AML, BSA to SEC, everything you can think of. It's it's so true and it is an important role, especially as things are being built out. Were there ever discussions about a token? I can imagine that was something that If there was, you would have played a big role in the outcome. Yeah, I'll say that a token has always floated across Coinbase at some point or another. If you go to the SEC website, actually, and pull up our public reports, you'll even see that back in the day when I think Coinbase filed its first 
S1, there was a contemplation of a token as well. And that got pulled as Coinbase went through its DPO process and the review and comment period with the SEC, just because frankly, it was a hard thing to get approved. And that was not something that Coinbase is ready at the time and just did a plain vanilla direct listing. And so I would say token is definitely something that Coinbase has thought of at some point or another. As you've seen, it's a really tough regulatory climate at the moment. And I'm really happy that Coinbase has decided not to pursue something like that because I think a token can distract a team from the core mission. And right now, it's more important than ever to build products that last for the long term instead of getting caught up in short term gains or token holders, what I think is a unnecessary distraction. Sometimes it's necessary. I think sometimes there are teams that need a token in order to help build that community and get it off the ground. But I think that Coinbase has already built its brand and its products without a token, and it can be also successful without a token as well. Yeah, no, agreed. And the volumes on base have been enormous. It's been launched to much success. And we've seen projects like FriendTech emerge and get pretty widespread adoption really quickly, whereas similar formats of project haven't scaled as well due to a multitude of reasons, but I think this base, which has been incubated within Coinbase, but is also using Optimism's OP stack and trying to make developers' lives easier. It's interesting you're framing too about how we're preparing for the next summer, right? The next bull run when everyone's going to be building and do we have things that scale to bring a billion people on chain? I think, is that the thing? It's a billion people on chain and a million developers? That's correct. Yes. That's cool. That must have been a really exciting thing for you to work on, especially after the go public, where you knew so much about the company. And now it's like, this is some new thing that wasn't really even a part of that's going to get built out. Yeah, it was a first time that I was involved in a project of bringing something from zero to one. And it was definitely not without pitfalls. And it was it was a project that was tough. I mean, I still remember the tough conversations with Jesse back in the day of whether a certain product is going to succeed. Are we going to win over our internal stakeholders, you know, that will greenlight the project? And it was not an easy time, but Jesse had a really strong vision of how to scale Coinbase and how to bring users on chain that I think being able to succeed and also succeed beyond even our imagination is a testament to that willpower that he and also a lot of the team members within Coinbase had. I, I think it's really, really amazing to see how this project has evolved, even within Coinbase, where there's hundreds of contributors that are not full-time. And I think that is something that I haven't seen where people just are so excited about a project that they will pitch in voluntarily on top of their really, really busy full-time jobs um, to, to help out. And so I think BASE is a testament to the fact that a lot of people are just passionate and are excited about the project. Yeah, I can imagine it was much easier to convince or even ask people to help on a project like BASE compared to the public filings or mo most of the other legal work that's done. Probably for a good reason as well. One thing I'd love to touch on for those who may have heard about BASE but aren't too familiar exactly what makes it different or why we're starting to see so much volume, could you give almost a TLDR on what BASE is and how it works? 
Would love to. Base is a layer two blockchain that sits on top of Ethereum that helps scale transactions by batching transactions off chain and then executing them and rolling them back down to the Ethereum L1 chain for finality. And the way that really impacts and lowers the fees for users is that part of the execution is now off-chain as opposed to previously everything is on-chain. And so going back to an example I brought up earlier, during the crypto summer, I still remember when Yuga Labs was dropping NFTs and the gas was just insane. It was thousands of dollars. And I remember sitting there wondering if it was even worth it. I was like, I'm not an active degen trader and I was just doing this for fun. And But I was like, this is this is just prohibitive. The cost is just too high. (laughs) And so the goal of base is to bring those transaction fees down. So more users don't feel that they need to have thousands of dollars just to buy an NFT. And analogy that I like to use in order to compare base is a telecommunications line. It is meant to be an infrastructure layer that is purely just to transmit data packets more efficiently more quickly and allow other DAP developers to build on top and use this telecommunications line so that they can use the backend infrastructure in order to power the kind of applications that developers want to build. That was a great explanation. Thank you. In your mind, what makes Base different than other layer twos that people have heard of or maybe using? I will caveat that I'm not a technical person, so I cannot wax poetic about the OP stack to the extent that other engineers can. One of the compelling reasons why BASE makes sense is scaling and security and Coinbase being able to apply its best security practices and auditing and integrating products. It is also governance and the idea of what BASE should be, which is really driven by optimism. I'm not sure how familiar you are, but the Optimism team has this idea of a super chain. And the idea is that there's this super chain where users can have a seamless experience across different chains, because right now chains are not interoperable. They're in their own little worlds and require users to bridge between these different worlds, which is not optimal from a user experience, but it's also not optimal from a security perspective. And Optimism has this idea that in the end, people get to work and build a chain to help scale transactions off of the same standard, and that is an OP stack. And then it get have a shared upgrade in terms of how this OP stack will get upgraded through time. And at the end of all of that is this seamless experience where users will be able to go between different chains seamlessly and it'll be interoperable in in many ways. And so I think that that North Star is the vision that Coinbase also sees and shares. Um, And and that is why Coinbase decides to collaborate with Optimism and, and using the OP stack being part of the Optimism Collective, and then also be a part of writing this Law of Chains document that details exactly what are the principles that chain operators should adhere to and what kind of standards are they going to follow so that there can be that 
North Star vision um, that hopefully everybody will be able to work towards and achieve at the end. And there was a great episode of The Chopping Block with Jesse Pollock where he was talking about the benefits that BASE has off-chain as well, which is support for devs and teams. And you alluded to that with the smart contract auditing and the best practices when it comes to securities. But then there's also the marketing aspect of it and the the ability to incubate teams and help teams out with what they need to build there, as well as the liquidity and other aspects that being related or incubated by a Coinbase can have. So it's been interesting to see it develop and really gain a big foothold really quickly. And you had one tweet relating to base, and it, it basically said that decentralization and permissionlessness are two core principles that every L2 should adhere to. And I think most people listening would agree to that, but I was wondering if you could expand on your thinking there. That tweet thread that you alluded to was something that I've just been thinking a lot on as I work with the base team at Coinbase. And it was, how do you decentralize? And I think that's very hot topic where there's no right answer and everybody has their idea and vision of like, how do you decentralize? And is it important even at the end of the day? So the way that I think about it is that decentralization means there's no single gatekeeper or even a single operator in terms of a chain, in terms of like base, for example, Coinbase is primarily the one that's operating the sequencer. And so the idea is that Decentralizing the sequencer means there's just more players involved where you have more players who will be able to check the sequencer. And this is just to provide more of a security of making sure that no single player has control or has the ability to roll back transactions and to just be a bad actor and that there are other actors within that ecosystem that checks back and checks back to each other. I think that is a very important concept. And then the second is permissionlessness, which just means that everybody can use this infrastructure layer, this base layer. There shouldn't be just barriers erected that prevents this one developer, for example, from deploying a dApp on it. I think that idea is also just bad because it just fragments even more the technology when the goal at the end of the day should be that it's for the users. It should be a seamless way for users to transact on the blockchain that they choose to. And developers shouldn't have to choose which chain and then being at this uh, at the whim of like a chain operator, for example, of saying, no, you can't build here. And I think like right. this type of idea that anybody can be on a chain or be off of it or choose not to build is very important. Definitely. And I want to touch on decentralization because you're right, it's a hot button topic. And it's an interesting one because you've been grappling with this idea of sufficient decentralization and decentralized generally for years. And no one has really been able to draw a line in the sand. And even you were saying you don't have one gatekeeper. And I, I agree with that. The question becomes, how many people do you need to act as gatekeepers before it's decentralized? And then if it is decentralized, what does that mean? And it's an interesting one because there isn't a number. If you say you have 100 nodes, is that decentralized? If there's 100 people running a company, is it decentralized? Not really, right? It's almost like an interesting dynamic between the form versus substance and just I think the idea that if there's not one controlling entity and different stakeholders have the ability to, or I think for me, it's like different stakeholders having 
the requirement to affect change being a consensus. That to me is like rather than an arbitrary decision, consensus is the back end of decentralization to me. But would love to hear how you think about decentralization and what it would mean from a even a legal or even a defined standpoint. Yeah, I'll say that this is my view and not Coinbase's view on decentralization. And I'm actually very interested to see how Base will decentralize over time. But from what I have observed and from what I have read and like talked to folks about, my mental model of decentralization is that there's these two types. There's technical decentralization and there's governance decentralization. And the goal is to decentralize these aspects, both of them, both technical and governance over time with other stakeholders. So the technical decentralization piece, an example is like decentralizing the sequencer and having fraud proofs live. And that in itself would draw in other actors that will be part of the process for validating transactions. And I think that is very important. And you're right, it's reaching a consensus. Um, and, and that type of idea is very important. And I would prioritize technical decentralization first. And then there's another part to it, which is governance decentralization, which is who's actually making and implementing the changes, who's putting that forth. And I think that is often in the form of a DAO, like the Optimism Collective. And that is very important to also making sure there's a lot of stakeholders who can voice and have a have a say in terms of how they see this technology should be implemented and upgraded. And I think that is also very important in both of them. Uh, have to do it in a very thoughtful manner because at each step, there's always going to be a, a, an attack vector, a potential security risk, and as well as regulatory risk they had to think about. And so it's a very multi-pronged approach is the way I kind of think about it, of doing it step by step, but both are very important because at the end of the day, what I, I think we all don't want or should not want anyway is that there just shouldn't be one actor. There should be one actor that's controlling the chain, that can halt, that can stop, that can change the ordering of transactions, that can change or take funds, for example. Like All of that is, is bad for the community and also bad for security. And that is what we should move away from. Yeah, it's almost like rather than the consensus, what I was saying, it's a bit more of what you were saying about failure points of failure, right? Like where are the risk or attack factors? And if there's only one, that becomes a huge attack factor. But if you look at something like Bitcoin, where to shut down that chain, the amount of computing power required would be enormous because there are so many different points of failure. And I mean, people even have arguments about that with the number of miners and the entities that are conducting the mining, right? So we don't really have an answer yet, but I think points of failure, consensus, like there's principles that we could unpack that lead towards this idea of uh, decentralization. And with regards to, to BASE, there were uh, a set of neutrality principles which were published. And I'd love to hear if you could just mention them and, and your thoughts on why these are important when it comes to not only layer two, but crypto generally. Because I think the interesting aspect of them is when you compare them to the traditional rules that we have in place, whether it's securities rules or rules governing corporate bodies, they're not too different. And it's interesting to see the principles that overlap. Yeah. So as part of 
building on base or when we were thinking of how how are we going to engage the public, what we've come to the realization of is that there's a lot of players or a lot of people in the community that may not know where Coinbase stands on a lot of principles. And so this blog post on the neutrality principles um, is very important. And the five principles that BASE laid out is one, the law of chains, that Coinbase is committed to upholding the law of chains that I talked to earlier. Two is the your keys, your crypto, that Coinbase does not custody or control the crypto of users. And that is very important. Like this is your wallet, your keys, your transaction. And then the third principle is that transaction ordering is a free market. It is not something that Coinbase is going to go in and like reorder or change. It is simply first come, first serve. And then the fourth principle is there's equal access to information. Coinbase will not use any non-public information of users of the transaction that's being that's going through the sequencer for anything else. Um, and then the fifth is the freedom to exit, which is you have a choice. Coinbase is not going to force a user to stay um, in the base ecosystem if the user does not want to be there. It can always go off and you do an, use another chain. And that is a very important principle for Coinbase to uphold. And so these principles is just to help anchor Coinbase in the community so that people know that this is what Coinbase is committing to right now. And people should hold Coinbase accountable to it. And, you know, that th this is part of um, the importance, I think, of building out in the open, building with the community in mind and making sure that Base is always thinking not about Coinbase and only Coinbase, but also thinking about the players and the actors and people using the chain. Yeah, and I want to touch on that in a second. But before I do two things, the first is about law of chains. And I think law of chains might be the only phrase that I've heard that could be a better name for this podcast than law of code. So kudos to the team that came up with that. But could you unpack what law of chains really means? For the listeners who are very interested in diving into law of chains, there's this great episode on Bankless featuring Ben from Optimism and Jesse from the base team talking exactly about this idea. And, and the idea of law of chains is just a set of just standards that every chain that's building on the OP stack should follow. And this law of chains document the rights that users have, the users that are transacting on an OP stack chain, the uh, the operators of the chain, what are what kind of standards and rights do they have? For example, neutrality. That's like a very important concept. And the idea is so that as there's uh, shared upgrades on in the future on the OP stack, this is the commitment that the Optimism Collective has to all the players within the OP stack that are involved and then what they can expect and what people should adhere to in order to make sure that if people choose to go to OP stack and build, this is what they can expect. And so I think that's a really cool and interesting concept. And um, it, it's something that I kind of think goes a little bit closer even to uh, Balaji's like paper back in the day about how crypto is like forming these like small communities and like these nation states in some ways. And I kind of see that this is the beginning of that. And this is uh, the people who are, you know, OP minded. This is this is what people can expect. 
Yeah, and in terms of things that are emerging, friend tech was a huge sort of driver of the volume on Coinbase uh, on base since it's launched. And you had a great thread online. You actually hooked me up with the code as well. So thank you. Thank you for that. Would love to hear your thoughts on friend tech and why you think this time it's seen a bit more success than some similar or analogous projects in the past. For those who might not be familiar with friend tech, maybe just a quick summary of what it does. I would love to talk about friend tech. It's something that I thought was so funny because I was just talking, I just a week or two weeks earlier, I was talking to a friend or I was like, oh, it would be so nice if somebody tries BitClout again. I love the idea of tokenizing yourself. But then I start going down this rabbit hole of like whether this is actually even good in terms of like <laughs> mental health. But putting that yeah. aside and then putting aside all the regulatory issues that may come from it, <laughs> friend tech essentially is a social platform for users to talk uh, to people and being able to create communities of dedicated followers using crypto technology on the back end. And it's basically a way to token gate your tweets. And so if I'm interested in listening to Jacob, your thoughts on friend tech, I have to buy a key and I will then be able to enter this chat room where you can give your thoughts to the key holders and then I will be privy to them. And so non-key holders will not be able to see what you, Jacob, want to say about, I don't know, like Grayscale's decision today. And so I think that's a very um, unique concept that maybe Twitter will go towards one day, but something that hasn't happened yet. And it's also a way to, I think, allow key holders like you and me to be able to support the people that we like, and then also to give people who are creators another avenue of being able to, one, uh, figure out who the dedicated uh, fans are, but then also too is just another revenue opportunity in terms of like being able to have control over your own worth in some ways. That's kind of how I think about it. I don't know if that's what the team thinks about it, but I, I think it's a very interesting concept and it's like a little bit like BitClout, but just slightly different. And then um, I, I, I don't know, it's still very much in a beta form. There's so many ways that the team can take it. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very interested to see the way they take it and how successful it will be yeah. a couple months from now. I know it's such a novel idea and I'm with you. There's benefits, there's downsides too. I know how difficult it is just looking at the crypto portfolio when it goes down and my thoughts about my decisions on those days. And I can't imagine if my personal worth <laughs> skyrockets or plummets <laughs> one day after a bad podcast or something. That would be difficult to stomach. But yeah, it's a really interesting concept and one that will, I'm sure will have some place in the future, what it looks like. It's hard to say, but the idea of a token gated community revolving around certain individuals is something I think everyone can understand. And I noticed that they changed the name from shares to keys in the individual, which was an interesting, probably a strategic choice I can imagine to make that change. But it's just cool to see how this tech develops. And I'm sure over time, things will look way different than they do now. But it's good to see that things like People are thinking through how to build technology like this, that there'll be so many ways that people can benefit that it's hard to even think about right now. Yeah, absolutely. And it brings me hope at the end of the day that there's still innovation that goes on and people yeah. are pushing products and trying new things despite the regulatory uncertainty that's going on right now. 
Yeah, yeah. And this is an interesting one too, right? Because you have to create your account and then the keys are created. And so it's who's issuing what and and in exchange for what. Yeah, so many interesting questions that come up. And we could probably talk for the next three hours on the regulatory concerns and, and, and touch points on that. So we, we won't do that. I'll, I'll spare you that conversation for now. But I'd love to talk to you more about building because now you're, I think, in my opinion, you're entering the building phase of your career and sort of building off what you've already done with BASE. How do you think about bringing projects from zero to one? And what have you learned from the process at BASE? I'm glad that you asked this question. I think the first thing to highlight when bringing projects from zero to one is to know your stakeholders. And there's the immediate ones that you may think of. So for example, at BASE, it was like working with a Coinbase Immediately, your stakeholders are your internal managers or teams that you that need to greenlight your project. But then thinking even one step beyond is who are they answering to? That's probably the executives. Who are the executives answering to? The board. And who is the board listening to? Their shareholders. And so there's a whole range of stakeholders of like, going up the stack that you should think about as you're building. And then also, who are you building for? And so another important key stakeholder is the community. And also who in the community? Because the community can mean the users or talk about developers. What I've learned from this whole entire project is the importance of stakeholder management and being able to have a story that makes sense from top down. And it, it may shift a little bit. The emphasis might be a little bit different just because developers are different from the users. But at the end of the day, it should be one theme, one idea. And at base, it was 1 million developers, 1 billion on-chain users. And yes, it is decentralized. Yes, it is open. Yes, EIP 4844 might kill transaction fees, but why is it still good? And I think being able to articulate that to all your stakeholders is super important and bring people along because at the end of the day, I've learned is like, you can have a great tech, but if you can't sell it, then you are going to lose. Um, it's just, it's just not going to succeed. And so I think having good tech, good story, a good narrative is very important, especially for stakeholder management. And the one thing that I also think a lot about just because I sit on the legal side is frankly also regulatory engagement and how is our strategy going to evolve from this product. And, you know, there's one, it's like we cannot compromise on being compliant. We have to make sure that the right stakeholders are involved. The specialists are here. We're utilizing them. They understand the tech inside and out as much as I do. And also making sure that if there are regulatory inquiries or if there are regulators we should reach out to, like thinking through what that looks like. And then also making sure that whatever the engineering team is working on, on the legal side, I'm keeping up and then making sure strategically, like if things go this way, what is our response? And so I think just having that type of flexibility and comprehensiveness of being able to think holistically of how this product will work and function post-launch is uh, very important. And so post-launch, I did want to touch on this and you referenced it before, but this idea of having a public centralized company, of course, that's accountable to shareholders and now creating a public good, a decentralized L2 that 
is to be moved into the community's hands and the goal being how do we bring people on chain. Some might say those trend in opposite directions where you're trying to accrue value to one set of stakeholders versus building something that's going to be launched and given to the community. Would love to hear whether or not you think that's the case and how that tension was thought about or you think about that tension. I will always remember my breakthrough moment, um, which was at ETH Denver um, when the base team and the optimism team were together in a room talking about the vision. I'll credit this to Gene and Optimism, who said, it's not a zero-sum game. We can't think of it as that way. The goal is to grow the pie bigger. You may get a smaller piece of the pie, but as long as the pie is growing bigger, you're also winning. And that is how we should think about you know, PNL, because I think in web two, it's very much, if my profits are going up, it's taking away from like this company. And here, I think in web three, it's very different. It's, it's open, it's decentralized. People can fork very easily. And I think the goal that a lot of people should think about is like, how do we grow the pie bigger? And I think that's very much in the same thing here is like Coinbase has its products, its revenue generating products. And then there's this infrastructure kind of base layer that it's also building that's more of a public good. But the idea is like, it will not just benefit you know, everybody else and not Coinbase, but it will also benefit Coinbase because then it will bring Coinbase users on chain. And then there's products that Coinbase already has and existed that can plug into base and that together it will just drive more transactions and drive more users or more revenue at the end of the day. And so I think like that itself is like a win-win-win scenario for both shareholders, for the community, for the builders. I agree. And that's such a good way to think of it, right? Rather than if one thing exists now that could take away in a small manner from the existing market. But also if that market gets 10 times bigger, now all of a sudden that minor percentage difference is irrelevant. Essentially, it's a rounding error. And especially when it comes to something like crypto and on-chain, right? Where there are only a certain number of people regularly interacting on-chain. And so the more that number can grows, I think the benefit to the ecosystem but and Coinbase and its stakeholders will be significant as well. So that's, yeah, that's a really interesting take. And I think one that often gets missed when people just look at the cover story of a centralized player creating a decentralized solution. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that um, a lot of people are still, and a lot of projects are still thinking through, um, even just most recently going back to friend tech. Um, I think there was a tweet the other day that was if like trying to retain users. And I think there was a tweet that came out that said, oh, if you are a user that is using a, a copycat, a friend tech, um, something I think about the points would be taken away. I think it was something around that, which was a little bit antithetical, I think, to a lot of how we think about uh, projects in crypto. But I think it shows how hard it is to think about mm-hmm. um, growth in Web3 retention and Web3 bottom lines. And so it's something that um, I think hopefully we'll get more clarity on as the time goes of how how do you build a successful business um, in this very competitive, very flat type of environment? Yeah. And it's an environment that I think we're all still figuring out as well. What is Web3 and what does Web3 really mean? And people have different ideas over what that could be. But I think the fundamental principle is moving along the value curve from taking the best of web one, the best of web two, and combining them to get web three. So 
it will be interesting to see what comes next. And in terms of what's next, I'd love to hear what's next for you. You've had a, an incredible run at Coinbase and some very prolific experience before then as well. And so I can imagine there are exciting things on the horizon, but would love to hear what you have up next. <laughs> Thanks. I think um, rest is probably the <laughs> first thing. <laughs> Um, catching up on sleep and recovering from my run at Coinbase. You know, it's been really amazing. Reflecting back in my um, two and a half years at Coinbase, it, it, I, have, I have done more at Coinbase than I ever thought I would do in two and a half years. And it's only the beginning. And so as scared as I am in some ways of the unknown, because this is very unlike me. I feel like I'm very much a traditional lawyer sometimes where I have to know exactly what I'm doing next. Um, I'm trying to take a page out of some of my former colleagues' books, which is like, you just go into the unknown and really explore, be open-minded. I want to go even deeper, frankly. I think that it was amazing to experience crypto from a public company, but I think I want to experience crypto from a startup. And so I'm I'm learning, I am exploring different projects. Um, and yeah, if you have any fun or interesting ones, please send them my way. I'm always open um, on Twitter and would love to hear and just meet more people and, and think about more ideas. Yeah. And I think I remember seeing you had a tweet about you would do some sort of not legal advice, but consulting and talking with projects. Is that something you're still doing? Yeah, well, I will say that was a that was definitely one way I was trying to bring some type of uh, value to the key holders that held my keys on Frentech. But right. um, yeah, I, I love. I think I just love talking to people who are building cool products. At the end of the day, it's to think through what are some of the legal pitfalls or some of the um, things to watch out for. Just because I have such a wealth of knowledge at this point that I would love to like help, help others who may not have the same, um, war chest as Coinbase. And so that's something that I, I feel very strongly about. Um, but then also, yes, I, I'm always open to talking to projects, whether that's an NFT project or whether that's, um, a, a privacy oriented project. It's just something for also for me to learn from other people as to what is, what is, being built out there. And besides catching up on sleep and which I don't know how you're going to do if you're doing all these other things. I know you're going to token 2049 you mentioned as well and you're you're working on uh Taiwan's Taipei blockchain week. Yes. Um I, I uh, one of my pet projects is part of this DAO called um which is a play on the Mandarin uh, words, like the phrase, I don't know. Um, it, it, I don't know in Chinese is uh, is And it's so we formed a DAO around it for folks who are passionate about Web3 and crypto and want and want and Taiwan. And so part of this uh, group, which I will call it BZD for short, um, is to throw a conference at the end of the year for builders um, in Taiwan. And it was something that started for the first time last year because um, ETH Taipei was canceled and there was just a gap in terms of 
bring people together. And so BZD, we decided to throw this conference. And now it's bigger, it's better for the second time. And we have really amazing people lined up. Please go to Taipei Blockchain Week to see the lineup of speakers. If you're interested in coming and speaking, we have a hackathon and we have also a, a summit day with Sora Ventures focused on decentralized science. It's something that I am passionate about and would love for other people to come and check it out. Amazing. And so is there, if they want to check that up, could they just, they could Google Taiwan Taipei Blockchain Week, or is there a best way to to learn more about what's going on there? Yes. Uh, just type in Taipei Blockchain Week com is December 11th to 16th of this year. Um, and just some of the people that we are, I mean, we have folks from Ava Labs, actually Brian Armstrong um, will also be coming, Paxos will also be speaking. And so please uh, check it out and um, yeah, come and join us. Like I, I think it's, it's such a very unique conference because it is small enough that people get to have real and intimate conversations. Um, last year, I saw projects get funded, uh, partnerships came out of that conference, and deals were signed. And so I think it's really amazing. Um, and I highly encourage folks who are just starting out in Web3 and or in Asia to come and check it out. Highly recommend everyone check out. That's taipeiblockchainweek.com. And yep. Next, I want to just ask about projects in general. And so you're involved in the blockchain week. Clearly, friend tech is something that you've learned quite a bit about and have been involved in. But are there other projects in the crypto space generally that you're excited to see be built out? Yeah, I'm still in my exploratory phase, but some of the projects that have caught my eye are one, Conduit in the rollup space, rollup as a service. I think it's a very interesting idea that is being explored and I think will only get more interesting as the time goes on. And essentially, like I, I am, if folks don't know, but Zora also launched their own chain and they use Conduit as a, as a service provider to help launch their chain on the OP stack. And so I think it's like a very, it, it's a very budding business that's coming up. And then the second one is Guild, which is a community oriented type of dApp that helps base as well as other blockchains, as well as other communities come together and just create a platform that it's so it's easier to engage the folks that are in your community. You could create token gated activities and just being able to better reach the users. And so I think that is something that's really needed in this space right now. And then lastly, this is like my favorite, honestly, which is like in the consumer space. I am always interested to see how crypto can be used in the more creative or real world applications. And the one that has really caught my eye is Early Majority, which is a clothing brand that really leverages crypto to build a community that also has a say in the type of products that they build. And they want to build sustainable products that are and they're, that are recyclable or they're made from recyclable products. And I bought a sweater or sorry, a jacket, a windbreaker from them. And it is amazing. It is so good. And I'm an outdoor hiker type of person. And so I was really excited and want to get more involved. Yeah. I'm just looking on the earlymajority.com website now. It's pretty interesting. They have a retail price listed and then a price for members. And so I guess you become a member by getting a token. Is that what it looks like? And then you you have access. 
Oh no, it looks like you could ju- you buy a membership for a certain price per year. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's a membership. I think it's an NFT uh, membership, and but it's also open to the public if you want to buy their apparel, uh, but it's not a member. It's just a different pricing, and so um, there's kind of two two levels there. Oh, very cool. Thanks for putting that on the radar. So that was conduit rollups, and then for community there was guild, and then for the consumer aspect there's early majority. So definitely recommend people check those things out. Thank you, Jolie. I'll have to go through. And what was the what was it you said you had? Was it a windbreaker? Yeah, I have this very lightweight windbreaker um, made from recyclable materials, and it's also packable. It's breathable and waterproof. <laughs> And at first I was super skeptical because I was like, there's no way. <laughs> um, but then I was outside in New York and it was raining and it held up. And I'm very, very impressed with the quality. Um, the The founder, I think, is a, w- was previously uh, one of the execs at Patagonia. And, you know, she's very experienced in outdoor gear. And so I think, uh, yeah, it really holds up to to their claims. They need to get you a, an influencer code, a Jolie 10 or something to, to, to show on the pod. That's great. Thanks. Thanks for that background no and just for touching on those. The last question I wanted to touch on with you was about, was a two-parter. The first is what habits have helped you cultivate a successful career? And this is one I like to ask often because I find you never know which answers could be pretty unique compared to what we've seen before. And I think what we are is just a collection of habits and things we do over time. So always on the lookout for new and interesting ones. Are there any habits that you have cultivated in your life that have helped you have a successful career or achieve you know, your goals in terms of your work, but also your personal life? Yeah. So the, um, in terms of habits that helped cultivate a successful career, I think the number one habit is just simply building the muscle of resiliency. Um, I kind of think about it as just like just having the mental fortitude in the face of adversity. There's always going to be so many curveballs, people who are telling you that you may not be that smart or people who may make you feel dumb or people who may yell at you. (laughs) There's just so many random things that may happen. And I think that being able to hear that and process it and then just let it go is very important because at the end of the day, I think a person has to know who they are and then not be apologetic and then, and then just keep pushing. I think I hear that often from entrepreneurs, but I think it also applies a lot to just building out your own career. Um, and, and I think like that was valuable to me coming up as an associate in big law and also valuable to me as I dive into crypto where I may not be the smartest in the room and I may say something that is totally dumb and I need an engineer to correct me. But frankly, there's no time to feel bad about yourself or doubt yourself. You just have to like take it and keep going. Otherwise you'll fall behind. And so I think having that type of habit or just having resiliency is super important. And the the last piece of advice is also just curiosity. Even when you're really tired and you're really burned out or, um, you know, or you're stuck in a nine to five where you have to read a lot of legal documents, although it's more like nine to two, 
a.m. I don't know, nine to nine. Like, I don't know. I've never had a nine to five job. <laughs> so um, it was just, it's more, it's supposed to like find ways to maintain your curiosity and keep feeding that because I think one, we're all creative creatures and we should always try to cultivate that. But also two, you never know where it may take you. It was because I was curious that I was I was doing the project 10% at Coinbase and then serendipitously met Jesse and that led me to base. And if you were to tell me, you know, when I was just a corporate lawyer, like, oh, do you want to work on a protocol? I'll be like, I don't know. Like who, like, is that something that I think is interesting? Like I barely know anything about crypto. And so I, I think like just maintaining that curiosity and be open-minded is super important because you never know where you will go from there. Yeah. No, I think curiosity is such a great measure of where your passion is as well. And people always say, follow your passion. But what it's hard to understand what that means when you're sitting in law school and not yeah. feeling too passionate about any of the subjects. I don't think I ever felt some deep-seated passion for the legal <laughs> textbooks I was reading. <laughs> Even securities class, like I think securities class back in law school was one of the most boring classes I've ever took. It definitely did not make me feel more passionate about becoming a securities lawyer. <laughs> Yeah, but sometimes there are areas that you're curious about and it's okay. I want to learn a bit more about how this thing called Bitcoin works and whether it's a security or not. So then what are the securities rules? What are they intended to apply to? And I think that's a good litmus test of where that passion could be, could be cultivated for the future. And last thing I just wanted to ask you was about any advice that you received early on in your career. And you've had the opportunity to work with some pretty impressive teams across the spectrum of big law and in-house as well. Does anything stick out to you as being particularly valuable in helping shape who you are today? I don't know if I have anything profound, but I did receive a piece of advice that's probably more practical, but I think has served me really well, especially in an industry that is is a climate service industry. And that is simply just responsiveness and, and ownership over your work. And I'm guilty of this where I, when I feel burned out or if I feel particularly upset about some other part of my life, I may not be as responsive as I should be to whether that's my clients or whether that's to my family or to my friends. But I think that never letting that get in the way. Sometimes, of course, sometimes life happens and you have to give yourself some grace. But I do think just feeling responsible over your friendships, over your relationships, over your clients, I think is very important because that is how you develop trust and communication with some with another person. And that trust goes such a long way, especially in a field where I think sometimes legal and product engineers may not see eye to eye on something and engineers may feel like we're just trying to rain on their parade all the time. And so I think being able to develop trust and respect, mutual respect for each other is super important. And I think being responsive, being responsible, feeling responsible for the relationship goes a long way. That's fantastic. And I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. 